As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. were not Christians. Honestly, Nigeria would be in a bad civil war by now. Because if not for the gospel, for the love of Christ that restrains us from carrying the weapons, that restrains us from going tit for tat. Because one of my former church leaders said, the, 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 the terrorists do not have the monopoly of violence in Nigeria. They don't. We, we could as well have found our own ways of hitting back. But no, we are Christians. We can't do that. We can't go into violence. We, the best we can do is to try to counter that violence, that bitterness with love, with light, and the lifestyle which we need. And that's how we do it. And that's why we are where we are today. Hello and welcome to Unbelievable, the show that aims to get Christians and non-Christians thinking about the topics that really matter to all of us. Today we are talking about another important topic and we would love to hear your thoughts on this so do get in touch by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk. But for now, let's jump in on today's discussion. Hello and welcome to Unbelievable. Today we're talking about whether it's ever acceptable for Christians to respond to persecution with violence. And we'll be focusing on the persecution of Christians and the fight for religious liberty in Nigeria. More Christians are killed there for their faith than anywhere else in the world. According to the charity Open Doors, almost 9 in 10 of 5,621 people murdered worldwide during 2022 for their belief in Christ died in Nigeria. And to help us understand why that is, the complexity of the situation in Nigeria, who the players are, and why this story is often underreported. I'm joined by Archdeacon Hassan John. He's an Anglican priest who comes from Jos in Nigeria, a church leader, a campaigner for religious liberty, and a journalist. Welcome, Hassan, to Unbelievable. Thank you so much for having me. Now, quite bluntly, why does the Islamic group Boko Haram want to have people like you killed? I think for quite a number of reasons, but I would say predominantly is because we are Christians and Boko Haram believes that we are infidels. Our existence corrupts their own understanding of what the Quran and the Hadith say, and therefore we are fair game for extermination as long as we do not, one, either conform to what they want us to be, that second-class citizens in Nigeria, or else we will convert to Islam. And this isn't theoretical in your case, is it? Tell me about that piece of graffiti you came across in a village near you. What did it say? Well, it just said, Hassan, we know you. 
we shall meet one day. And that sent the signal loud and clear. It was in a village that I'd never expected to see my name written on a graffiti on the wall. But it just came out of the fact that I've been campaigning and covering stories, reporting about the attacks of Boko Haram across the region. I had followed the pattern of the attacks and tried to let the public understand the nature of the attack, who the people behind the attack were, and what their game plan was at that time. Even though, even at that moment, we really didn't clearly understand what Boko Haram was all about because it was coming from far eastern, northern and eastern Nigeria. But that was my first encounter with uh, Boko Haram. Then I knew I had a bounty on my head. Well, we'll pursue the question of who they are, where they came from, what they believe in a moment. But just tell me about Nigeria. All I know of it roughly is that 50% of the people in the north are supposed to be Muslims. There's about, what, 40% in the south are Christians. And in this middle area where Joss is, where you come from, is a sort of, well, is the front line of conflict. But is it really as simple as that? Because some people have said this is about land, it's about who owns land as, as well, and so on. Is it a primarily religious conflict? It is primarily a religious conflict, although there are different narratives out there depending on who you speak with. Um, so I would say the political class or the in politics, especially when they want to talk about things that are politically correct, they say, oh, well, this is just a clash between nomads and Christian farmers, and these nomads are predominantly Muslims. I think this comes out of the, 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 the narrative of the Nigerian government trying to complicate the issues because we know clearly Boko Haram, what they stood for, what they wanted to do, because their very first video, actually in 2010, that went online on YouTube, they declared a jihad in jobs, asking all Muslims to come and fight the religious war. So their and targets were very clear. But along the line, we also have the other militia groups. These are the Fulani Islamist militia group. Now, this is different from the Muslim Islam, from Fulani as a tribe. We are talking about a particular group of militia who had worked with Boko Haram at some point, but they have now spread into so many groups and for so many reasons, economic reasons, you know, religious reasons, whatever it is, but they have now stepped up the fight. And they, according to reports, have killed even more people in central Nigeria than Boko Haram has. Well, looking at the figures, I mean, with the latest ones I have were for February 2022 to January 2023. And I think 1,350 uh, Christians were killed by Islamists. Is it getting worse? I mean, it's appalling, but is it getting worse? Actually, that figure was underreported because since then, uh, according to our calculation, more than 12,000 people have been killed. Indeed, just last year alone, more than 6,000 people were killed. And this year... Sorry, that's six times, not no, a thousand as I said. You think in a year, 6,000? Yes, 6,000. Now, interestingly, this year, 2023, between January and now, over 1,000 people have been killed. This is how bad it is getting. You know, this seems to me anyway, as a, you know, just a general reader of the press or whatever, pretty underreported. Do you think that? Do you get frustrated that the world is not more up in arms about this, not better informed about it? Very frustrating, very frustrating indeed, Roger. So there are two reasons here. One is because, like I said at some point, that when it comes to talking about Nigeria, the especially now that it's much more, on, on the religious ideology that has to do with radical Islamic sect and Christians, it's an, an area that many people just don't want to go into. 
because anything to do with Islam, just people just don't, it's just a quagmire and they say it's complicated. But much more because climate change has now been blamed because it's the easier, I don't know, narrative to, to throw around for people to accept. So when people say it's, oh, it's caused by climate change, or it's just a little clash between herders and farmers, one day underreported, they're underrated, and people definitely also they don't take it as serious with the magnitude of the problems that it is. Because an uh, old parliamentary report that just came out about a couple of days ago actually brought out the clear ideological drive that is you know, behind these killings. And so now we are beginning to understand the reality and the magnitude of the problem that it is driven by religious militia groups and radical Islamists. And they are working in conjunction with Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb, that's in the Sahel region of the country. They are working with Islamic the ISIL in West Africa. They are working with Ansaru, which is another radical terrorist group in West Africa. So they've combined, and the Nigerian government has admitted that they now reside in central Nigeria, where they are perpetrating these crimes. So because it took so long for the international community, especially the political class, to accept that this is a religious issue. We are where we are today. Unfortunately, death, thousands of deaths later, we are now accepting this. Well, I want to pursue these issues and the nature of the militia and so on in a moment. But I'd like to ask you about your life. And when you started off, you were born, I think, in Jos, where you are in that part of Nigeria. Um, what was it like then? Did, did you, was this hatred already there? Well, interestingly, when you look at the backdrop, the narrative, Nigeria since independence has really never united as a nation because we have a predominantly Islamic North. We have a predominantly Christian South and indeed, you know, run by, by Western-style economy. Well, from the South, the, there is a history of the Osman Amfodia Jihad of the 1800s. Now, this... You know, are you, are you saying in a way that Nigeria is a country which... It doesn't exist, as it were, over a long period of itself. It's basically lines drawn on a map by the imperialists. Exactly, exactly. And that's where the problem started. Because the issue now is, we do have a country, but the question is, do we have a nation? Because we never had one. So this, yeah. I, I was born in a situation where the tension had been there, the conflict. And very subtle, because growing up in northern Nigeria, I'm born from a Christian family, but my name is Hassan because... My family felt that if I had an Arabic name, I would have a better chance in the society. I could not be admitted to public it was, school. It was, a, it, was, it, it was a form of protection. If you'd been called, I don't know, Jesus, Paul, Peter, whatever exactly. it is, that might have immediately drawn attention to your faith. Hassan, perhaps not. Yeah, Hassan, Hassan is assumed that I'm a Muslim. And I, indeed, I must confess, I got away with a lot of things because of the name. Otherwise, I wouldn't get admission into public schools. I probably, if I was working in a government establishment, I wouldn't get my promotions. I can, I know a lot of military officers today who have names that are Arabic and they're assumed to be Muslims, but they are Christians. Actually, some deliberately changed their names. This is how bad it was right from the beginning until the violence that started from perhaps 1999 and Boko Haram came into the equation 10 years later. So before 1999, you've got prejudice, uh, if you like, against Christians, but it's not really of a, of a very violent nature. Uh, why did, why, what happened in 1999 that turned that into the particularly appalling violence that now takes place? So 1999, the introduction of the Sharia law in northern Nigeria, because at that time, the, the 
political class in the north felt that President Obasanjo then, who was the president, was a Christian or is a Christian, and they felt therefore that they needed to have their own identity because the divide was getting wider on the political landscape. So the northern night governors, especially from Zamfara State, started calling for Sharia law to be established in northern states, and it spread like wildfire. But by 1999, that created violent conflicts and riots in the streets. I know thousands of people were killed, for instance, in Kaduna State because of that. And so the divide... Now what form of what form of Sharia law are we talking about? Because there's an argument that it depends very much on the culture where it's introduced that determines, if you like, the the nature, how conservative it becomes. What's, could you describe what Sharia law was like that was introduced in northern Nigeria? Oh, the one in northern Nigeria was the very, very fundamental conservative style of Sharia law, which meant that thieves had their arms amputated if they are caught. Uh, women had to wear and cover their faces at every, in the street. In commercial vehicles, men and women wouldn't sit together. Nigeria was a very populous country, and of course with a very bad transport infrastructure, that became a large challenge. Beers or anything that was seen as haram wasn't going to be sold in the streets. And there were all this, this and then the hisbah, which is now the more like the, the police, the Islamic police, were on the streets with whips on their hands, beating, forcing people to conform to Sharia law. Even though the mm. northern governors insisted then that it wouldn't affect Christians, but oh, there are countless stories of Christians that suffered under the, the law. But even added to this, we are now the accusations of blasphemies. Because then, a lot of Christians, I can say, on records, we have about three or four or five that were beheaded in Kano, for instance, just on accusation for, of, of desecrating the Quran. Whether it was true or not, the people, I mean, there was nobody that ever found out, but the people were killed in, and they, they were beheaded with their heads hung on poles on the streets. That's the kind of Sharia law that we saw. And I think Boko Haram actually means Western education is forbidden. I mean, they're not just, actually, as I understand it, forbidding. Western education, they're forbidding almost any book that isn't the Quran. Is that right? That's correct. So Boko Haram, as far as they are concerned, and the interpretation of the Quran and the Hadith says that Western education, as far as they understood it, of course, that's the history of Nigeria came with the Christian missionaries, especially from CMS here in the United Kingdom, Northern Ireland, when the missionaries came. You know, the missionaries established the schools and the hospitals that we have today. But in the mind of Boko Haram, anything that came from the West, especially education, was an agency that was adulterating the Islam and therefore needed to be destroyed. So now in this in this situation, why did you just keep your head down? Why did you become a Christian leader? Why did you put your head very much above the barricade? I mean, was your was your conversion sudden, or did you just grow up knowing? the truth of, of, of Christianity. What happened? And then what were the risks attended to coming out, as it were, in that way? Well, I grew up indeed from a Christian family. My mother was, was part of the choir. So I, I enjoyed that, that I was fortunate to grow in a Christian family that stood on the, on the principles of the scriptures. Even though the community around me was very oppressive when it comes to religious divide, you know, but then growing, going forward, so the thing, this is, this is it in northern Nigeria. The thing is, you had the choice to make. You were neither Christian by name, 
if you are a Christian, you had better be a Christian because you will face the persecution. You will face the discrimination. And so going on and on, we learned to live and adapt by this, but that helped us grow in our faith. Well, knowing at the well, you learned to well, you learned to keep your head down essentially. But I mean, at a certain point, and certainly the point you decided yeah. to become a Christian leader. Yeah. Did you ever think of just leaving? Oh no! Well, I mean, I, I became I, a Christian leader. I, honestly, I must confess that it wasn't an easy decision. I remember even at my ordination as a priest, my Archbishop Benjamin Kwashi announced to the congregation and said, these people today are ordained, but they have just sent their death certificates. So you knew clearly what you were going in for. But for me personally, it was because I understood the love of Christ. I knew we were living in, that shouldn't be the norm. There was something about, about the love of Christ that needed, the light needed to get into all these dark corners and bring the transformation. Yeah, but it's one thing to be transformed personally. It's another to stay where you are. I mean, you could legitimately have left and gone to the south and done something else. It's another thing to stand up, but it's another thing again to be a leader. I mean, martyrdom, uh, as you would see, it was a real, you were prepared for martyrdom. Is that what you were no. saying? No, <laughs> no, definitely not. I'm, Though he I'm told not, you you'd signed your death warrant. Yeah. The archbishop said you'd signed your death warrant. So for me, so this is that, you know, interestingly for me, it's that you, it, at the, the, Thought of martyrdom, actually, in the context of Nigeria, is really the best thing one thinks about. You only look at the pains in this community. You see the widows, you see the orphans, you see people that are going without food, and you want to do something about it. So at every and any risk, you just want to reach out and say, look, God cares. We are here. We are with you. We'll go with you in this suffering. And whatever it takes, we will stand by you. And day by day, as I went on on one part, trying to be to do the advocacy and try to get the the information that was necessary to counter the narrative and to stand up to the government, by the way, because I saw a government that was massively corrupt. I saw security agencies and the army and soldiers that were that were were they, they, they were lopsided in the way things were done. Apart from the corruption that was eaten into the the fight against Boko Haram and insurgency. There were politicians that were living fat on the miseries of people. They were making so much money. Relief materials that were supposed to go to the refugee camps were stolen by high government officials. So there was so much injustice that I just couldn't sit down and do nothing. I just couldn't keep my head down. And quite a number of us as well. I'm not the only one, but we just felt that we needed to speak truth to power on the one part, but to reach out to those communities and embrace them and let them know that Jesus, we are here as Christians. We wouldn't let our brothers and sisters suffer in the context in which we saw things happen. And we knew that it could be different. Something can be different and we will do something differently. So I think that was just the drive. And how close have you come sometimes to meeting and being, well, arrested and who knows what else would happen if, if Boko Haram got hold of you? Have you had some very narrow escapes? We know from the graffiti we talked about at the beginning that they know who you are. Yeah. And you must do. Although, so, man, if you could see, I have I have scars on my body. I mean, you just can't live in a, in that war zone and not and not get physically, you know, affected one way or the other. Apart from the psychological and emotional traumas. What, what scar? How how did the scars come? Oh, about? so this this this. So we were it. The, the attack started in the community in Jaws, and for three hours, the little Christian community was surrounded by 
radical Islamic youth that were chanting Allahu Akbar and there was gunshots all over the place. And we were pinned down for about two hours. And here, trying to carry the, uh, we were trying to carry the injured because about five, you know, three people were shot and we we're trying to get them to some emergency treatment. And it was a local clinic, I would say. And it was very difficult because the person that got injured, the medical personnel was using needle and thread to sew the deep wound to stop the bleeding. So well, we were doing all we could. And then, of course, there was the bullets that were whizzing over our heads. And on my part, for instance, was a hit on the head against a wall when we were trying to run, into, run for cover. And of course, the other injuries were riding on a motorbike because I've been to more than 150 villages in central Nigeria from one attack over the after the, after another and trying to assess the situation, meet with the Christian communities and brothers and just try to understand as much as give them hope about the fact that we can't give up whatever situation we found ourselves. But in this, of course, coming back this day, there was an accident on the motorbike. So apart from the fact, like, like I did mention, I, I have a bounty on my head when you know, Boko Haram decided that they just needed me out of the way. So it's difficult to live in this area without a scarf. Sorry to interrupt you, but people in this country will know a little about this, I think, only in the sense of the capture of those schoolgirls who were taken away and so on. And why, why would Boko Haram do that? To, one was to make a statement. And secondly, so th this is it, right? Even when the schoolgirls were were abducted, abducted by Boko Haram. The, the state governor denied, and even the presidency said it wasn't true, it didn't even happen. So it took a lot of effort, and thankfully, uh, CNN at that time, when they got wind of the thing, got in touch with me as the journalist and the reporter on the ground, and they said, look, we are getting these rumors about the abduction of over 300 girls. Can we verify this? And that was what took us in a two days journey to Chibok, again in Boko Haram territory, to be able to break that news that started now the Bring Back Our Girls campaign. So you established that it had happened, but I was trying to get the motivation of Boko Haram, and was it that they did it to demonstrate their power? Yep. Was it that they wanted to impregnate these women and, and, and create fighters of their own, or? Yes. What was going on in their minds? So the one definitely was to make a statement they needed to prove to everybody around that they were coming against anyone that would establish a Western-style school. So it's terror. It's terrorism. It's terrorism. Ter absolute really, terrorism. Because before even the abduction of the three hundred Chibok school girls, over one thousand five hundred women have already been abducted. Which the, the I mean the news never came out. It was in these rural communities where. They had already uh, destroyed the cell phone towers. So information wasn't getting out as quickly as it ought to have gotten out at that time. So even at that time, my meeting with the police commissioner in the state, this was his anger that we were worried about just mere 300 girls when he couldn't account for nearly 2,000 women. Because Boko Haram would kidnap them, will impregnate them, because there they were trying to grow according to their, 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 their whatever mindset they had to grow a population that are Muslim. But secondly, also they knew that with these girls pregnant, carrying children, by the Christian standards and morality we have, we, they can't abort them. So they are now forced to, to bear the, the Muslim 
Islamist or children. And these girls, of course, are either forced to convert or even when they come back, because of stigmatization, they probably won't get accepted or get married again. So one was to destroy their so they, so they, in a sense, they can't come back. They might come back physically, but they can't resume the position in society they had. So they're, they're permanently damaged, both psychologically and in terms of the attitudes of people towards them. Absolutely. That, that has been the target. And of course, while I'm not an expert in, in Islamic jihad war, but it seems to me that is the semblance of when you establish a jihad war, the Scott strategy they use, pregnanting girls and infusing the blood, they say, within a bloodline of a community or society so that whatever happens, there is a bloodline within that community or that tribe. And that has been the strategy as well. Well, Hassan, John, if we just hold it for a moment, uh, if we may, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, but remember, we always love to hear from you, uh, to our listeners. So don't forget, uh, you can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or you can get in touch, of course, via social media at unbelievable fe that's for twitter or facebook.com forward slash premier unbelievable that's unbelievable with a capital u if you want to interact on our facebook page we've obviously got lots more to talk about you're listening to premier's unbelievable with me roger bolton and my guest today is hassan john we'll be back in just a moment before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Anti Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. Welcome back to part two of this discussion on Premier Unbelievable, where my guest is Hassan John. And today we're talking about whether it's ever okay for Christians to respond to violent provocation with violence. And I'm discussing this with someone who's known all about that provocation and wrestled with its Christian response, Hassan John. Uh, Hassan, the first part you were telling us about your own upbringing, the situation in the North, in particular of Nigeria, the Muslim North, and the activities of Boko Haram. Uh, can we talk about them a little bit more? As I understand Boko Haram, they are representatives of the Sunni branch of Islam, uh, not the Shia. And as I said, that Boko Haram itself means Western education is forbidden. But I think you were suggesting at the beginning of the program that they're not an isolated group. They have links 
elsewhere in Africa. Could you just tell us a little bit about those links and the extent to which everything that's going on is coordinated or whether actually it's driven by a set of beliefs that people share and then, as it were, operate in individual groups? Yes, so Boko Haram that started with Mohammed Yusuf, the leader who was killed by the army one day or the police when he was arrested in 2009. At the time they started, there were just this radical Islamic sect that wouldn't conform to civil law. They felt that they could only live on the Sharia law and they believed that the country, as a Nigeria as a democratic country, can only exist and rule under the rule under the Sharia law and the Hadith or the Quran. So they now had eventually tried to affiliate with with al-Baghdadi, ISIL, when he was alive. And that didn't happen as much as Sheikh Bubakar Sheikh who was the leader at that time that wanted it. But to cut the long story short, eventually they had affiliation with al-Qaeda that had been very active in the Sahel region, that is in Niger Republic and Mali, because the French government, let me say the French army, and indeed the U.S. had been working very hard in Mali to curb the expansion of the radical Islamists, especially those that were coming or running away from Libya after the collapse of Libya as a nation. Their affiliation was therefore then with all the terrorist groups. They were not beginning to converge in Mali and the Niger Republic because in, in the Sahel region, between Senegal all the way down to Chad, and indeed that cross cut across to Sudan and over to Yemen, that area has been a big challenge for the international community when it comes to radical Islam. So they have had linked with their affiliated groups uh, in, in those areas, particularly Al-Qaeda and the Maghreb, that ISWAP, that's Islamic State in West Africa province, and indeed Ansaru, that also came out of Niger. Now, forming that alliance, Boko Haram now split into two after they had an internal conflict and Abu Bakr Shekau was killed. But then they now started recruiting much more and expanding in the villages. Between, from Mali, they went down to Burkina Faso and there are so many incidences in Burkina Faso of, of attacks. But particularly focusing in Nigeria, they now started coming down. And I must say, this is now accept. I mean, the Nigerian government has now agreed that there are powerful, even though unnamed personalities that have also helped to fund them. They've helped to coordinate and they've helped now to get them settled in Nigeria, especially in Niger state between Zamfara and Kaduna state, unfortunately. So these are records. So what you're, what, what, what you're describing is a growing organization, not a shrinking one. No, it's a growing organization. A, it's growing. And, and of course, immediately people say, what do we do? How do we react in the West? How do individuals react on the ground? If we're looking from the, the, so the outside world's position, they're tempted to say, well, let's look at the social conditions that uh, allow this to prosper. And, and, and undoubtedly, there are things that ought to be done in terms of uh, assisting countries like Nigeria and whatever. But do you think it's ever possible to negotiate with an organization like Boko Haram that they, in the end, just want total victory so that you have to both defeat them as well as you're trying to change the circumstances in which they prosper. But there's not a great deal of point of trying to have an amnesty with them. My opinion is this, that when it comes to radical Islam, unfortunately, 
it has to be Muslims that must be in the forefront of fighting radical Islam. Any other thing in my mind will just fester and create much more problems. But in Nigeria, there aren't so many Islamic groups or clerics that are standing, you know, against the, the radical sect within the mixture. Because if I come out as a Christian or any, we, we've seen this example with the, with the U.S., in other countries when they try to fight radical Islam. But now when Muslims and especially Muslim countries in the Middle East keep quiet, then it becomes a problem. It continues just to fester because anyone coming from outside would be seen as an infidel. And indeed, it gives room for the radicalization much more of young Muslims to say, oh, well, is the West fighting us? Because that has not been the general narrative. Or is them fighting us? Or is this fighting and us? And, and presumably, it's also the old colonialist is still exactly. still exactly. treat, treat, you know, treating us if we are, you know. So you, you've, it's got, if it's got to come elsewhere from the Muslim world, well, the Muslim world as we know is split between Sunni and Shia. Which countries do you think could exert? Which Muslim countries could exert more pressure on Boko Haram to improve the situation in Nigeria? Well, we've known for a long time that Saudi Arabia has had its influence in Nigeria for a long, long time. Of course, Iran has its influence with the Shiite groups as much as Saudis have their influence with the Sunnis. So the appeal has always been, could the Saudis do something much more than what they are doing now? Yes, they have said they were going to help Nigeria fight. We've read that in the pages of newspaper. But have we seen them on the ground? No. What we've seen even much more is the British government, the American government, doing as much as they can to help empower and build and equip the Nigerian army to do that. The issue is, where's the Muslim world? Where are they? What are they saying about this? Because if any other person says that, somewhere else, there will be a fatwa on someone and you'll be, you know, a man to be killed. So it's, it's a little complex in this sense. It's political as much as it is economic and social. But I think our plea all the time is to say, Unless Muslims begin to stand up to see the evil and in, unfortunately the bad name this is bringing to Islam. Because going down the line, especially let me use Nigeria now as an example. So in Nigeria, it is very difficult to get both animists and Christians to believe in any shape or form that Islam is a peaceful religion. Because they have lived in this for about 15 years now. And the hmm. Apart from a few moderate Muslims, and even those ones have been targeted, you know, and that has created another level of complication. But where are the rest? Apart from the, the newspaper condemnation, there's all, oh, well, you know, in fact, what is even more frustrating in Nigeria is they say, oh, well, Boko Haram is not even, they are not Muslims. I would say they are not Muslims. Well, I know you have this continually where people want to disassociate themselves and you have, of course, I said this fundamental split. But I mean, in my limited way when I've looked at the Quran and whatever, I do find that a lot of the things that people expect to be there aren't there. For example, in terms of women's clothing, the Quran would say women should be dressed modestly. But it doesn't say what they should actually wear, whether she, et cetera, et cetera. It's the culture at a particular time, particular moment, which is saying this. But when the, we look at the Quran, it's not there. But when you try and talk to any more of the more militant, militant Muslims about this, how do they respond? 
Oh, they, uh, will they engage? Will they engage at all with you? No, they wouldn't engage. They just simply tell you this is what the Quran says. Period. And so we have this, for instance, with the killing of Deborah that was accused of blasphemy in, in Sokoto State, for instance. And indeed, even the others that have been targeted for killing. So this is it. Suddenly, a line is drawn and they say it's either this or it's a death sentence. And suddenly, again, other Muslims are just cowed into silence. And so the minority radical groups seem to now have their sway. And they now become public. And because they use violence, it becomes a very difficult area to navigate. Well, can I come to, come to this? Because we've dealt with, if you like, what governments can do or not do, or at least try to do, and on the international stage. But it be gets very personal when you are standing up in front of some young Christians who have witnessed these sorts of atrocities. And what do you say to them? Do you say it is unfortunate but inevitable that we have to combat violence with violence? I mean, as you know, we've tried in the West to devise, if you like, the just war criteria, things like that, which try and justify violence. Do you ever try, and do you think it's possible for a Christian to justify violence? Roger, this is a very difficult question. <laughs> difficult in the sense that, I mean, so if you are outside, let me say, the, the war zone, the killing fields, I'll call it, in Nigeria, it's easy to say, well, you know, we, we, we can't counter violence with violence. We can't go against what is, you, you know, you, you, you must learn to show love and compassion and dialogue and negotiation and things like that. However, if you're within the context, living in the communities where people are killed every day, where you see uh, mass graves every day and there are widows and there are children, it becomes a very difficult thing to not jump into the instinctive existential mode where now you believe that unless you carry arms, unless you do anything to defend yourself, and indeed you you are right to 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 defend yourself. Indeed. But you're talking about the difficulty of persuading people not to commit violence. That's but right. do you yourself believe? Are you a pacifist? Hey, Rogers, let me Roger, let me say, to be honest with you, at some point I went to look for an AK forty seven. It was so bad when a church near mine, St. Fimba's Church in Rayful, was bombed. Then my church, that Sunday, the vibration of the bomb rattled all the glasses in my church. It, it, it just rattled every... It, it just gets to you. It, it right to your spirit and your soul. And you know, the, the, you, you know that you have to do something or else you get killed. And indeed, on the advice of one of my church leaders, he said, look, Hassan, I have served in the army at some point. You will need to get an AK-47 here because we now know the pattern. They come with suicide bombers approach your church during service. They are wearing vests or they're driving a car. We can bring them down even before they get to the church. And it sounded like a great idea. So, yes, I did go to somebody I knew who was in the black market of selling guns in Jaws and I asked how much it would take to get an AK-47. He told me at that time it was going to cost about a thousand pounds. I couldn't come up with that kind of money. But you'd, in principle, taken the decision if you could afford. If you could afford it, if I could afford it, I definitely went for it, Roger. You, you see, the, see, I think we're all facing these sort of dilemmas, aren't we, as Christians? Which we can, we read the Gospels, and you can read the Gospels and conclude that 
Jesus was very close, at least, to being a pacifist. That's there are plenty right. Plenty of verses will indicate that. And yet, it's like Ukrainians faced with Russian intervention, or ourselves, I suppose, in this country in the Second World War. There, there's always a point at which you say, most of us say, if we're not Quakers and others, at that point I cease to be, as it were, a pacifist. I have to defend things, but. There's no great confidence we have that violence will solve anything, but it might at least stop the situation getting even worse. Yes. Yeah, so in my case, that was that was the thinking because the only thing I'm sure that stopped me from getting that HF to someone was because I didn't have the money. However, God in his own mercy, you know, to perhaps show me that that wasn't the way to go, now brought in this little girl as I was sitting in front of my church as she was selling groundnuts. And I asked why she was not in school. And she told me she couldn't afford the school fees because her parents were killed. Or rather, her dad was killed. So I told her to go tell her mother that I would pay the fees. And this girl started walking away. But somewhere in my mind, I said, well, she's a seven-year-old. She either was not willing to go to school or she may not tell her mother exactly what I said. So I decided, why don't I go with her and actually see the mom? So it was when I was working with her that now I realized that she was heading towards her home, which was within a Muslim community. Then it dawned on me that she's a Muslim. And at that moment, I couldn't turn back because I was already working with her. I was a pastor wearing a collar. So it was a difficult decision. I mean, it was a split decision, but I decided to go with her anyways. But to cut that long story short, I met the mother, a very lovely woman. You know, she went on her knees in the typical traditional way and thanked me for wanting to help train her child. And she explained to me, you know, the she had other children that are unable to go to school. And when the seven-year-old girl was hockey, was because they needed to feed. So I said, well, why don't I teach you a skill? And then the children can go to school and then you can earn some living for the family. So that started, for me, an amazing journey. Because suddenly, I realized that within the Muslim community, there were other widows that were there that had the same challenge and their children were not in school. So I brought them together, talked with my Archbishop Benjamin Kwashi, and we decided to fund 147 children in school, all Muslims, and then started this training, which for me was an engagement with the Muslim community. And Roger, I must tell you that one year down the line, it is it's such, such a big blessing because the love and the care we showed and the relationship we built this community came one day and they brought this big fat cow on a Christmas Eve and said, Hassan, we have watched you. At first, we were apprehensive. We didn't trust what you were doing. We thought it was just a way of converting our women and children. But now we've seen, so I'll quote, he said, we've seen the Christianity that we saw when the missionaries brought religion to Nigeria and they brought Christianity. We saw honesty, we saw commitment, and we saw dedication. We want to thank but you. But what? But... But you've achieved a, a tremendous amount there. But you may have to protect it against Boko Haram. Do you protect it with arms? This is the no, question. No, no, not at all. So this is the incredible thing. Now, suddenly, this community that I had related with, an incident happened on a Sunday morning. A young man was walking towards my church with a device. And then the Muslims raised an alarm, and the young man was arrested. So the leader of the community and I came and called me and said, Brethren, we have nothing to do with this. I said, what are you talking about? He said, look, this device, this young man coming towards the church with a device, he's not in our community. He's perhaps one of those that was radicalized somewhere. But let me promise you this. As long as we live, 
as long as I'm alive in this community, nothing would happen to your church. You've shown us love and commitment, and we will defend your church with everything that we have. And I felt that come through very powerfully. Because what I and wanted... this the defense, and is the defense of this church needed? I mean, your your church it's still Saint Christopher's. Saint Christopher's, sorry. Yeah. Your church, Saint Christopher's, is it threatened on a regular basis? It was, yes, it was. I mean, from 20, 2016 until this relationship built, and now the church is. We are just so confident and so relaxed now. We don't need the barricades we had set at the beginning between 2010, and now we've removed them now. We are now having Muslim youths come to our school church as much as we interact with them. So we are very comfortable and I would say relatively very safe uh, between us and the Muslim community in Rayfield. It's, it's a wonderful interaction we have. But but is it something which can be replicated? Is it a do you do you believe that this can can act as an example that can work elsewhere in Nigeria? Absolutely, indeed. So a friend said to me. Your church was mentioned in the central mosque in Jos. I said, why was it mentioned? He said, well, they were talking about some kind of working relationship you have with the Muslim community, and they don't know how you achieved it, but they're thinking that that would be a better thing and the best thing to begin to do that in other communities as well. And I can name four communities that have replicated that and they're working on it now. It's, it's such a great thing that rather than violence and arms, love is doing much more. And this is also because terrorists, although they they can operate fairly independently, they do require support from, or rather tolerance, from the communities in which they operate. They need for food for a whole range of reasons. So if you could persuade the Muslim community not to support them, not to help them, ultimately they find it much more difficult to operate. Absolutely. And you think, and you think that there is a way forward through love. Oh, yes, absolutely. Not only does Boko Haram and rather radical sects get their followership from, from all those that are around them that are moderate Muslims, so to say, but so also we've achieved the change of perception of what Christianity is because along the line, the narrative you hear in the streets, especially with radical Islamist scholars, especially during the Ramadan, in, 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 in their tafsirs on the horn speakers, they say all sorts of derogatory things about Christianity, uh, especially about Jesus or about Mary and about how the Bible has been corrupted, how we are all infidels and things like that. But this relationship, now they begin to see Christianity in a different light. Now they begin to understand that the Jesus that Isa that they have in the Quran and Mariamu that they have in the Quran, the, the, the perspective just suddenly begins to shift. And especially within my community, I've seen that happen. And I'm, I'm just so happy it did the way when we started this project. But is it something where you have to say, it's not proper for us to evangelize in these circumstances? Yes, of course, we, you know, we're open about being Christians. But actually, what we have to do is behave like Christians, not go in and, as it were, try and convert, but hope that our example changes people. Is that... Yes, Roger. What I actually didn't want to mention was that a few months down the line, a Muslim youth came to me and said, Pastor, I don't know why you did what you did, but I know a little about the, the Bible because he had attended the mission school. And then he told me about the little he had with him, the Lord's Prayer that he has learned and some part of the creed. And I said, why are you asking me this? And he said, I want to become a Christian. 
I said, do you understand what this means? He says, yeah, I know. I've thought about it. I've spoken about this with my friends. I want to become a Christian. So that again started a different journey. And like you rightly said, you, we don't need to go from door to door throwing flyers or throwing Bibles at people's faces. By the character and the lifestyle we live, and not showing fear, not showing discrimination, understanding, respecting, and upholding the dignity of every person and what they believe, irrespective of what they believe. That now brings a complete turnaround, which is what I have seen in my in my country. But when you talk to the when you talk to, to Muslims in these circumstances, are you I mean there is a way of saying, look, we're we're all all three, well, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, we're all Abrahamic Abrahamic faiths. We all believe in the same God. We all believe uh, in some ways in some of the same prophets. Is there a dialogue possible which starts from there? Or is that not possible? Unfortunately, I see that that is not possible because what we hear about, oh, we serve the same God, we are all Abrahamic, is just a political correct narrative. Because no true Muslim agrees, no true Muslim at all agrees that we, we have that commonality in the same God that we serve. Because they know we serve a true God. They know that we have Jesus the Holy Spirit and God the Father. Yes, but her, with respect, yeah. with respect, Muslims Muslims venerate Jesus as a prophet. They don't see him as the Son of exactly. God, exactly. Uh, but they venerate him, prophet. They they you know, venerate Mary, uh, the Virgin Mary, in the same way. There is a lot in common. Yes, when you indeed. Look at it, of course, it diverge it diverges at a certain point. Exactly, superficially there is, but when the robber hits the road, like we say, when the chips are down, especially in the context of the Nigerian religious divide. The, the difference is very sharp. Out here in the West, yes, it is possible to have those commonalities and discuss them, but out there, the difference is even sharper. As much as we try to say, yes, we have, and indeed, we have a lot of things in common when we look at the thing, but generally when it comes to, to, the, to the ideological, the, the ideology or the belief that now pushes us to bring the division within the two societies, especially Christianity and Islam, then there's where the problem is. Because while the radical Islamists are having a different narrative, even against their fellow Muslims, you find out that the, the Christians on this part are now confused on how to handle the situation. Because you want to dialogue. I, I'm part of the interfaith uh, community that was set up by the government in Plateau State where I come from. And we sit down to dialogue. The problem is when we sit down, all the time, you have to define every term you use. Because when you say peace, it has a different meaning for a, a Muslim and a Christian. When you say tolerance, what exactly are you talking about? So it becomes necessary down to come down to the nitty-gritties and give a definition of those terms so that you can move forward. Well, I'll just uh, we'll move forward in a moment, but we have to take a break here as well. I want to talk in the final section of our, our program about the problem of forgiveness in these almost impossible situations and about your own future, uh, if I uh, may. But uh, if you want to contribute, if you want to talk to us about this discussion, you can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk. See you in a moment. Welcome back to the final part of our interview with Anglican Archdeacon, church leader and journalist Hassan John about religious freedom and the continuing attacks on Christians in Nigeria. 
and you're listening to Unbelievable, the program that tries to get Christians and non-Christians thinking about the topics that matter to all of us. I'm Roger Bolton. Hassan Jodigate, thank you very much for being with us. And I say at the end of our previous section, I want to talk to you about your own future. But finally, at the beginning of this section, I want to talk about perhaps the most difficult thing that we all face as Christians, or one of the most difficult things, is forgiving those who've behaved appallingly. Not that we don't behave badly ourselves, as we ourselves need forgiveness. But when we look at some of the things which you've been detailing in this program and some of the atrocities, the anger wells up and the idea that you should even consider forgiveness in these circumstances is sticks in the throat. Now, some people say, well, you have to forgive, but a condition of forgiveness is that the person who you're going to forgive, or God is going to forgive, shall we say, has to show contrition. How do you approach the problem of forgiveness? Dare you raise it with those who have suffered so badly? Yes, uh, it's, like you said, a very, very difficult, difficult area to, to discuss, to actually even navigate when it comes to those that have really suffered tremendously in this. I know a lot of Christians who find it very difficult to forgive. And even as your pastor, sitting down and trying to talk them through, this has become a, a very difficult area. Simply because, so again, in the Nigerian context, What's even making it more difficult is the Nigerian government decided that all those that have become members of Boko Haram or the radical Islamic militia groups that are attacking, killing, and raping communities, when they are arrested, they are de-radicalized in about a couple of months, whatever that means. And then they are brought back into the same community to live with the Christians who, who, who suffered and are victims of the deaths and the rapes and so I met this woman and she said, Pastor, you're talking to me about forgiveness. This young man that is living three doors to me killed my husband. They took him away. They said now he's been de-radicalized and they've brought it. What do you expect me to do? Sit down and have a cup of tea with him? It's not going to happen. So you know, this is, this is exactly the situation which applies in the, the part of the United Kingdom in, in Northern Ireland where you have people who know that their husband or their son has been killed by a person they see in the street who's walking free as part of the, the agreement which ended the violence. And it's very difficult in parts of Northern Ireland to see that people have moved on. Now, in South Africa, of course, they had the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, which was trying to think it away forward was, if you like, that confession of what you've done and then it's possible. I don't know which which way for is there a way forward uh, that you can see. Uh, do, do, does Nigeria need? Will it need some sort of truth and reconciliation committee before it goes forward? Or do you say to your fellow Christians, "No, we absolutely are told we must forgive." So there are two things here. Uh, for Christians, and especially a lot that I've interacted with, we agree that there must be forgiveness, both for the atrocities that have been committed, but also for our own spiritual healing and moving ahead. So that is agreed. Now, the other challenge is, where is justice then? Are we saying there shouldn't be justice? Do we just throw it out of the window? So what we're trying to encourage the Nigerian government as much as possible to do is to say, yes, we will forgive. We want to move ahead. However, on your part, we must see justice done. 
Now, either in the form of the Truth and Reconciliation Committee or Commission that needs to be set up, where we sit down and dialogue and say, can we sit down? And if there is genuine turnaround to want to forge, forge and form a community and a society to move ahead, then that solves it to solve a lot of problems in this in this regard. Unfortunately, that's not what we are seeing because the Nigerian government, on the other hand, seem to just want to sweep everything under the carpet, underplay the, the hurting, not recognize the pains that people are going through. Let me give you a quick example. Ten years ago, I met a young man who, who was 12 years old, had his, his parents were killed. And then 10 years later, this young man joined the army, recruited into the, into the regiment uh, of the army. And the only purpose for this young man to get into the army was he wanted vengeance. And I, but somehow that doesn't seem to, to connect with the political or the politicians or the government to say, we have a massive backlog of problems. We need to sit down and address it. We need to look at what is going on. But what is happening now is just a tussle in Nigeria, unfortunately, on the political scene, whether it's a Muslim that must rule or it's a Christian. So the divide continues on the Christian-Muslim thing, even in politics, especially in the last elections that we've had. And the healing has not even, then nobody's even talking about the healing. So as a church, what we're doing is, first and foremost, we continue to insist that there must be forgiveness. And then we work as a Christian community to encourage the security agencies and the courts to say, where is your, you took an oath to uphold justice. Can we see it in play? Because that forms and makes it easier for people to move on. And, and I think there's just the little complexity that we face. And are you also saying to individuals, although it's very hard to take, in a way, put themselves first. And if they don't forgive, in a way, they're condemning themselves to a life of bitterness and they won't be able to move forward. It's a, it's a difficult thing, obviously, to get across and to say somebody who's lost those closest to him. But if they want to put themselves first and live a good life, they have to, in a way, forgive or at least learn to live without bitterness. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I thank God that for a lot of the communities, that is what the Lord is doing. It's bringing healing in the lives of so many people, so many widows and, and the orphans. And we try as a community also to see whatever assistance we can give in terms of where they live, what they do, you know, just to help them move on. But yes, absolutely, is to think first and foremost that you can't, you can't allow the bitterness damage you personally in such a way that at the end of the day, you, you, you are persecuted for being a Christian, but you also could miss your relationship with God if you don't forgive. Because, and then you also must understand, like we keep saying, that the Lord says vengeance is mine. I do, there is, well, we seek for earthly judgment here on earth, but let's not forget that ultimately God will not just let it pass because he is a just God. And in that, we find a lot of solace. And what about you, uh, Hassan? You're somewhere, I shouldn't say where, but you're, you're somewhere in this, uh, this country. Um, are you going to go back to Nigeria? What's your, what are your plans? I mean, are you going to go back? Are you going to go back to Jos, in that most difficult area, what are you going to do? Interestingly, I just came back from Nigeria a couple of days ago. I've been in there. <laughs> I, I went all the way down to Chibok, where the school girls were abducted, and I had a wonderful meeting with 
five of the mothers of the girls that are still in Boko Haram captivity. Uh, because I believe as a priest, uh, it, it is my responsibility wherever I am in the world that there must be this connection, there must be this encouragement, and there must be this growth. So I feel it is, as a pastor, it's my duty to see the, the spiritual well-being of Christians wherever they are and to continue to help that and nurture that to grow. So yes, oh, I'm, I'm in Nigeria almost every now and then. But I take it you don't advertise your presence. Mm, not at all. So that's, forgive me for being a little vague. <laughs> that's the reason. Yes. So what? So, so essentially, do you see yourself having two roles now? The continuing role of the pastor in Nigeria as often as you can get there and with individuals. But then in a wider sense of waking up the world to what's happening and what needs to be done. Absolutely. And, 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 and I thank God that. We do have a lot of Christians all over the world that have been praying. And let me use this opportunity to thank the organizations and the Christian communities and the churches that have been on their knees praying for Nigeria. I must, I, I must tell you that those prayers are being answered every day in those communities in Nigeria. It, it's an amazing thing. And I believe also, uh, as part of my responsibility, is to continue the advocacy to continue to report on the truth of what is going on and to give a good picture. Because, so this is the interesting thing, which I didn't mention actually, that every time I, I, I'm back in Nigeria and I bring the report and the good news of the Christian community all over the world that are standing with those in their persecution, it brings a lot of joy, a lot of excitement. I, I wish I had time to share a couple of videos where people are singing and dancing and praising the Lord and thanking God that, despite their, their circumstances and challenges, they've not been forgotten. Indeed, that there, there is another army of church leaders and churches all over the world on their display on their behalf. It's, it's an encouraging thing. But you see, some people would take a, would, would acknowledge that, but would also say one of the reasons why these issues in Nigeria are not at the forefront are because still we have a racist church it, it is a fact that if we were talking here about white people happen, and this was happening in Europe, it would be easier to get attention. But is your impression that actually the worldwide Christian community is much more aware than perhaps the rest of the community about what's happening and that racism is not playing a very big part in this? Not at all. Not, not in Nigeria, not within our context. As a matter of fact, if not for the, for the support of Christians all over the world, I many people would have died not from the persecution or the physical attacks, but also from starvation. Because we have a lot of people that have made sacrifices and commitments and they've sent their resources to churches in Nigeria, to communities, to youth. A lot of them are continuously being trained because of the support of the global church. So yes, in, let, let me paint this picture. You see, for us in Nigeria, especially from just where I come from, there is no substitute for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am alive today because some missionaries many years ago left their comfort here in the United Kingdom, came into that dark village where I am, brought the gospel, brought education. You know, they brought, they, they, they brought the health that made me survive as a tree, even when my twin brother died, came stillborn. So we're ever grateful for the gospel and for those that sacrificed their lives in jobs, there are still graves of some smith or some, I don't know what, that came those many years ago, that they died in our land trying to give us the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't take that for granted. We know the power of the love of Christ. 
And we have also experienced, you, 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 you wouldn't believe how much my faith has grown in the midst of all this persecution that we face. Because day by day, we feel the Lord work with us. We know, we feel his presence. Yes, the pain is there. Yes, the challenges are there. Yes, we see death all around us. But in it, there's also this peace, this comfort, this solace that indeed, evil will never overcome light. And so we know we feel that. You see, it's quite, there's a strange thing that goes on with a lot of Christians, I think, in the West who have lost confidence about their faith in the sense that they feel that it may be appropriate for the country in which they live. But when they try and take it to what used to be called the third world or developing world or whatever, they see themselves as colonialists and they see their message, oh, Am I actually represent? Am I being a colonial? We're trying to spread the Christian message. And what you seem to be saying is the exact, in some ways, the exact opposite. Absolutely, absolutely. Look, Roger, I can tell you that if we were not Christians, honestly, Nigeria would be in a in a bad civil war by now, because if not for the gospel, for the love of Christ that restrains us from carrying the weapons, that restrains us from going tit for tat, because we. Somebody, one of my former church leaders said, the, 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 the terrorists do not have the monopoly of violence in Nigeria. They don't. We, we could as well have found our own ways of hitting back. But no, we are Christians. We can't do that. We can't go into violence. We, the best we can do is to try to counter that violence, that bitterness with love, with light, and the lifestyle in which we lead. And that's how we do it. And that's why we are where we are today. And what is the best that we can do, Christians who don't live in Nigeria and the rest of the world? Do you believe that prayer really has an impact? If we pray for you, have you a confidence that that materially affects how people are and how they live in, in Nigeria? I'm speaking to you today simply because of those prayers. I know. This, I'm, not, I'm not assuming. I'm not, this is not a, a theological thing. It's not an, I mean, no, that I live, I'm talking to you today because somebody prayed, or some people were praying, and somebody prayed while we were facing those gunshots, while those gunshots were ringing, while the bullets were flying, that the Lord intervened in that small Christian community that was surrounded by gunmen. And many villages today, with many people will tell you the same experience. Yes, these prayers work. And that is why we keep saying, please never forget to pray for the Christians persecuted, not just in Nigeria, but all over the world. Yes, there are people that get killed, and uh, I can't explain how or why. And yes, not everybody survives the way that the Lord has protected me. But even in that, we know and we see the Lord work in the midst of all these, these pains and sufferings and the challenges. Yes, the, the ultimate thing we need all the time is this intercession and these prayers for the people. Now, let me quickly also add that not just because we need to... We, 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 we need prayer so that we don't get killed. No, it's much more for me because we still have the gospel to carry to the people out there. We have, I have a team working in Borno State, that's northeastern Nigeria where Boko Haram is very active. I'll not go into details about that. But, but we are now having Muslims that have converted, even under the nose of Boko Haram. We need to carry that light. And it's exciting when... You sit down with a, with a woman or a young man that say to you, look, this is what I used to do. Now I've seen the light. Now, now I have life. I used to live in the lifestyle that I thought was genuine, but now I have peace. I have comfort and I experience love for the first time. It's an amazing thing. 
forgive me for asking this question because it's a very personal one, is that even, even those who have a great faith have moments of, well, if not despair, of doubt. Have you had many of those moments? Because you've every reason to have had them. You've had experiences the rest of us have not had, horrific ones. Have you ever been in a really dark place in terms of your faith? Oh, countless times. Countless times, I must tell you, even as your pastor. There are times, the, the, the general question you will hear among us Christians, especially in the midst of all the tragedies, is, where are you, Lord? Or why this? And the questions keep coming, you know, but that is also at the moment that you feel this little comfort. This It's just like this gentle touch that gives you the assurance that all is well. You know, you can you can do that at death yesterday, but today you can walk out of your door, look up to the sunshine and have a smile on your face and say, it is going to be well. You know, it, it's, it's a strange thing. It's difficult to explain. I've had those moments of doubt and darkness and, and you know, frustration. But at the end of the day, you know, I, 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 again, because the prayers that continue to come, because there are people that are fasting somewhere, there are people that are interceding. That's why I say without any fear of contradiction that those prayers have worked because it is in those moments of time of, of frustration, of darkness, of pains and tears that suddenly you, you have this, this little, this, I, I can't explain, it's just this little feeling. And, you know, for me, strangely, it is just some, some song that pops into my head. It could be, it could be, oh, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to the Lord in prayer. Those, those kind of, and those childhood choruses, you know, they come in and then you now have this feast. And then, is 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 a, is a little difficult to explain that suddenly deep within your heart and your soul, you know that even for those that have passed, that the Lord is in charge and they are resting. But when you look at the big picture of you know the challenges and the tribulations we we, we face every day, it's it's a, I don't know it's a little difficult to explain. <laughs> it's just an experience. And, and one one last question, really, but it's a political one, so forgive me, trying to attach you onto political grounds. But it's really about the worldwide Anglican Communion, which is under great strain now, as uh, as you know, backwards. And the African churches, in particular, on on issues of sexuality, are tending to take a rather different view than significant parts of the Church of England. And there, there's a lot of condemnation going around. But there are some people who wonder about the value of the worldwide Anglican Communion, whether it is worth the effort of trying to hold it together when on many areas, or certain with regards to sex and, and so on, homosexuality, it, it, it's very divided. Do you still think that it's a vital element, the Anglican Communion, that needs to be kept, even if it's difficult to hold us together in terms of what we believe? I think we have come to a moment in history where something has to give one way or the other. Unfortunately, it's happening in our time. Unfortunately, it's taken the shape and manner in which it has. But the hard decisions will have to be made, and I think they have been made at high quarters here and there, that one way or the other, there is a divergence in, in the path in which we now take. And uh, somehow, as much as we may try to keep the communion together, I don't see, personally, I don't see how 
the different divergent views uh, will work together. Is it not possible to say, we recognize there are great differences, but we recognize there are also great things that hold us together. Can we not park our differences? Can we not have a looser structure? But can we not concentrate on those things that unite us and work together? Because the situation you've outlined in Nigeria requires the worldwide Christian community to work with you and to help. The problems, the economic and other problems facing Africa with climate change coming as well, require the worldwide to work. At this point, should we just is it possible to park issues such as sexuality and say, concentrate on these things that matter, protecting your colleagues from violence in Africa, issues like this, praying across the world for them. Should we not be concentrating on that rather than on what divides us, particularly in terms of sexual issues? I think there are two quick issues here. One is the fundamental issue of the scripture. What does it say? What is our belief? What do we hold on to? What do we follow on the one part? But the other part also is the confusion that was brought in, unfortunately, by the Western church, misunderstanding completely the African context and understanding of sexuality. Because it, it, the, the, the impression is the African church doesn't understand and does not agree and does not accept same sex and homosexuality, which is completely false. We've lived with it. Even in my family, we have people that are same-sex. It's never been an issue. We have handled it within the context of the individual families. We've run with it. I, I can't remember any time in my life that the, 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 any person that is same-sex was either discriminated or was attacked or within the, the society. It, it never happened. Now, again, within the African context, when it comes to sexuality, it is deeply, deeply a private affair. So as children, we knew our uncles and our aunties who were same-sex. But it was never an issue of debate with us children. They knew how to handle the matter. They handled it. And even within the context, so there is a mechanism within the African cultures and different tribes that they've been able to handle this. And it's never been an issue until, unfortunately, the West made it a political and a social issue. As a husband and wife, I, it's difficult for me, even in the streets of Nigeria, to walk holding the hands of my wife. And it's not that I don't love her, but it doesn't fall within the remit of the, of the cultural acceptability of what things are. So that's where the problem is. You, you seem to say that the West is obsessed with sexuality and it should just actually concentrate on other things. And specifically, obviously in Nigeria, helping you to bring an end to this quite appalling conflict. Indeed, Roger, I think you've just hit the nail on the head. The issue is we're too worried. We're dying every day. Like I said, even yesterday, eight people were killed in Joss, near Joss in Manco, for instance. The problem is, is the list of the problem that we face. So quickly, one thing is that we believe and we want to hold on to exactly what the scripture, we, we, we understand the theological debate, we understand the interpretation of the scriptures, we understand what theologians want to say about the scripture. We only simply understand the simple saving grace and the power of the gospel to transform the life of any human being. Simple. We don't want to take it too complex. The people that go out evangelizing, unfortunately, even in Nigeria today, I can say boldly that those that have the PhDs in theology, I don't know how many have converted a soul in a year. <laughs> those, that, those that converted souls and changed and transformed lives are those that all they do know is how to read 
they are John 3, 16, and they go from village to village and expressing the love and the care they share. They are the ones converting hundreds to Christianity every day. So as far as we are concerned, you, you, we can sit on the high horses of theological debates here. It's good for the sake of the academics. However, when it comes to day-by-day -day transforming of life and showing love, that is where we stand in the fields, and that's where we walk. Well, I'm afraid that's where we'll have to stop with that delicately delivered reprimand and telling us what really matters in the Christian faith. Uh, thank you to my guests, uh, Archdeacon Hassan John. We hope you've all enjoyed that discussion. I have. I know it's been deeply troubling, but it's also been, in many ways, for me at least, inspiring. You're a remarkable man, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, for talking to us and of course we want to know what you think uh, but until the next time goodbye thank you for joining us on unbelievable the show that aims to get you thinking we would love to hear your thoughts do get in touch you can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or leave a comment on our twitter account at unbelievable fe or on the premier unbelievable facebook page and do check out our website, premierunbelievable.com. Registering there gives you access to all of our web content and our newsletter, through which you can gain access to hours of exclusive bonus content. That's premierunbelievable.com. Thank you for listening and see you next week. <laughs>